FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh at the Mayo Clinic, and with me is Dr. Doug Packer, who is Director of the Heart Rhythm Services uh, at um, Mayo, and our topic for today is really... Uh, we got to focus on radiofrequency ablation for atrial fibrillation. Welcome, Doug, and perhaps you could just begin by discussing the pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation in regard to the targets for radiofrequency ablation. One of the most important issues in doing an ablation for atrial fibrillation is trying to understand how you're going to fundamentally change the mechanisms. And I have to say, Bernie, that for the amount of work that has been done over the last 40 years in looking at this, we still know relatively little. What I do think we can say is that a fair amount of atrial fibrillation, at least early on, the paroxysmal atrial fibrillation in the absence of a lot of underlying disease, is due to a trigger. We call it trigger dependent. So there's some place in the heart, typically pulmonary veins, that and what is the fires structure? Off. What is the structure of the trigger? What what is it? Yeah, it's a focus, but what what is it? It may be one or two cells. You know, you would think that it's going to be um, centimeters and centimeters of abnormal tissue. That may be the case in maintenance factors or the substrate dependence of an arrhythmia. So, quite simply, let's look at this in terms of a trigger. And that, is that, that a fires it. Is that a muscular sleeve? Um, well, there's certainly sleeves that uh, wrap the outside of a vein. And someplace in there, there are specialized cells that have triggered automaticity, and they fire off. Now, if you then have a susceptible substrate, then you may get a sustained arrhythmia. And if you've got scarring, and if you've got atrial enlargement, and you've got, say, hypertension with hypertrophy, or you've got diastolic dysfunction, and that changes the fundamental substrate, then you can go off into any one of a number, number of different uh, areas to maintain atrial fibrillation. Well, I think it's an important concept, Doug, and I learned that from one of your earlier papers, and that is that we really should think about atrial fibrillation as perhaps two diseases um, with, a, with an intermediate group, but one group would be those younger people, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, no structural heart disease, positive family history in many, and it's primarily a triggered a triggered event. And then we have at the other end of the spectrum patients with um, vascular disease, increased arterial stiffness, diastolic dysfunction, left atrial enlargement, scarring, fibrosis, and that's a substrate. Uh, now, obviously, there has to be a trigger, but it's primarily substrate dependent, and then there's got to be a group somewhere in between. That in-between group, I would say, would be the, the the susceptible or initiation substrate. Now, see, this is relevant because if you're looking at atrial fibrillation, when we started out 15 years ago, we were simply targeting individual triggers. So, in fact, let me um, just stop you right there and, and ask you specifically. This is a 15-year-old procedure, and how has it changed? My impression is it's gone from specific targets to targeting the entire atrium, and now it's getting a bit more specific again. But maybe you can just give us an outline of how this has changed over 15 years. And it has changed. 
Uh, when we started this at the very beginning, we were going after single triggers in some pulmonary vein. So that may have meant that we were ablating a centimeter or two into a vein, and we learned quite quickly that that causes pulmonary vein stenosis. So the move, even 10 years ago, was out of the veins. That was the mantra, stay out of the veins. Stay out of the vein and encircle the vein. And encircle the vein. So then you isolate the vein, and that still takes care of the trigger. But what some people don't realize is it deals with substrate that's involved in perpetuating atrial fibrillation that it, that resides around those veins. So we figured that out, and the success rates went up. Now, as time went on, we were willing to take on more complicated atrial fibrillation that is really this substrate-dependent uh, atrial enlargement. You get to a volume index over 40. Those ablations require dealing with triggers, ablating around the veins, but it also requires that you in some way change the underlying substrate. Now, sometimes that requires an ancillary procedure. So that might be linear ablation, say across the roof of the left atrium between veins. It could also be along the lateral LA isthmus, a very critical narrow neck of tissue where there's the possibility of a perpetuated Um, flutter. Anatomically directed or directed on the basis of fractionated potentials or both? So, so far, we really have just talked about anatomically directed problems. But then we found that there were complex and fractionated electrograms, um, basically meaning... reflecting slow conduction. Basically meaning altered conduction. It might be slow. Slow It might be where there are a couple of fibers that move off in different directions... And as those fibers move in different directions, it splits away from, So it's for slow example, conduction and inhomogeneity. It vary. And the, the more you have in the way of underlying disease, the more inhomogeneity you get. Doug, is there, um, is there been a shift back to making this a more focal procedure? Given that, I mean, we, we, uh, there is some concern about how, how much how much the atrium can tolerate in terms of radiofrequency ablation or even a surgical procedure, but, I mean, it it is damaging an atrium. Well, it's like anything else. It's like basketball. If you're having a problem with what you're doing, you go back to the basics. (laughs) You go back to dribbling and the very fundamentals of what it is you're trying to do. So I think what's happened over the last couple of years is we have gone back a bit in the direction of pulmonary vein isolation. And if you have a recurrence, pulmonary vein isolation. And then if you have a recurrence, pulmonary vein isolation. It and, prob- and that being because you're postulating that whatever the trigger was is re-innovated. Or, I mean, you, you've done a pulmonary vein isolation. It works. Then they get a recurrence. Is that because yeah. you didn't get it the first time or uh, because there's been a... I, I might use a slightly different term than reinvigorated. What happens is instead of this isolation being maintained, and those cells that you ablated being dead, they were only stunned. Okay. And we fooled ourselves. Yeah. And as soon as we found that there were recurrences, we found that you could isolate the pulmonary vein again, deal with those cells or gaps that were so, stunned, so and we really have ha- success. We really have gone through a cycle, focal, more diffuse, and more diffuse ablations or wider 
wider circumferential ablations are now more focal again, and, uh, or at least a trend towards being more focal. Doug, would you quickly just go through uh, the complications? Because I, I think people have to understand this is not a trivial procedure. There are major and minor complications. And if you could tell us about that, and then we'll get into the results. If you go to any website that's out there, and there are hundreds of them, uh, I think that you would see that complication rates are down on the order of a half a percent to one percent. Now, that's a problem. Too low. That's a problem. Those websites either don't look or they don't follow patients long enough. So I I think that in in sitting down and chatting with a patient that's going to undergo the procedure, a patient may come to us with the notion that this is a low-risk two-hour procedure. It's not. It may be an eight-hour procedure. And the risks, in general terms, have to do with putting catheters in a vessel. Okay. So those come under the minor complications, access complications. Yeah, maybe a half a percent to one percent risk. And then there are some complications that can occur simply because of the medication that's used during the procedure. There are anesthesia issues, uh, an occasional bleed because of heparin. What about tamponade? And then we get into the the more problematic ones that have to do with manipulating catheters and moving in the heart. So tamponade, myocardial perforation, that can either be because a catheter perfs a portion of the heart or... If you're burning too hot, there's a potential for that to happen so under that circumstance. 1% to 2%? You know, um, I think if we're going to count all of the uh, pericardial effusions, we really should be talking 2 to 3%. You'll see 1% to 2%, maybe just a scotch higher than that. So pulmonary vein stenosis is now down to almost less than 1%, from originally 10%. <clears throat> yeah, and it's simply because we're bleeding outside of the heart. But redos still may have a 2 to 4% pulmonary vein stenosis risk. What about, That's important. What about uh, risk of stroke? Um, Under new concepts. New concepts. Under the age of 60, the risk is probably a half a percent to 1%. But the thing that we found... Over even, the age of 60? Over the age of 60, if you look at the literature from the last year, then the chance of a disabling stroke may be 1%, but the chance of some embolic event some cryptogenic something could be as high as 10 to 20 percent. And then before we get on to the results, suffice it to say that the lethal complications of esophageal, uh, tracheal, fistula, and um, less lethal but uh, problematic phrenic nerve injury are about one in a thousand. Atrial esophageal fistula, one in a thousand. Phrenic nerve injury depends on what kind of device you're using. But uh, in general terms, that risk is a half a percent. And that's usually temporary, isn't it? Within 6 to 16 months. We actually looked at that, and so one of our papers noted that it may take as long as 16 months to come back. But in point of fact, about 96% of them do come back. Let's end up with the results, because my own impression has been that... um, uh, that as you start to get five-year follow-up data, which there are now about five or six series, including one of our own, the five-year data really, uh, I don't think, are as encouraging as I would have liked. And uh, maybe you can just summarize uh, early and, and late results for us. Well, you and I would want a procedure with zero risk and a success rate of 90%. Oh, 90%. Oh, 90%. All right. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, the issue at hand is, I think a much better number is 70 75% for those that don't have any underlying disease. Okay. Paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So, so yeah, let, let, when we get into the results, as we are, let's just start off. 
paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, no structural heart disease, five-year results. Even in paroxysmals where there's little underlying disease, you get out five years, and that 70% drops down to about 50%. And what about with a second procedure? If you do a second procedure and you isolate the pulmonary veins and deal with ancillary issues, you can bring that back up to 70 to 75%. With the addition, possibly, of drugs as well. Actually, the 70 to 75% is just with the repeat ablation. If you wanted to get it up to control rates of 80%, you can do that. You'll pick up about 10% with drugs. So, um, and what proportion of patients are likely to have a second procedure? I think patients need to go into an ablation with an understanding that 20 to 30% of them are going to need a second procedure. I thought it was higher than that. If you look in some centers, it may be 30 to 50%, but if you look at our experience, it's more like 20 to 30%. Now, if we're talking about somebody who's got a lot of underlying disease, <clears throat> if we're talking about somebody who's got atrial enlargement... And, and let's take someone with persistent atrial fibrillation, um, not paroxysmal, persistent, they may have hypertension, they may have some atrial disease, they have a substrate. Uh, what would you put the five-year survival free of symptomatic recurrences at? So you start out with about a 60% success rate. Right. And then months. that drops down to about 30%. And what proportion of them will require a second procedure? Now, in that group, if you're only going to do it with an ablative intervention, then you're going up to 30 to 50%. And, and again, I think that patients need to know that. They need to know that this is a little bit more complicated, both on the efficacy side and on the safety side. Doug, when, when is enough enough? I mean, what, what does bother me are some reports isolated. Uh, we've seen some cases after surgical maze uh, of stiff left atrium syndrome. Uh, there is radiation exposure. We don't know long-term effects. I, I get nervous when I start seeing people come in for the third and fourth procedures. I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, why are we doing the procedure in the first place? <clears throat> We're not going to do it to prevent strokes. We have Coumadin and Dabigatran for doing that. We're not going to do it because we're going to make people live longer. At least we don't know that we're doing that. That's what the Cabana trial was for, is to determine whether or not we can change mortality and other outcomes. We're not going to do it because we're afraid that somehow if we don't do it now, a patient's going to be too right. old later. We do it for quality of life. We do it because of symptoms. So in answer to your question, if somebody comes back for their second or third or fourth procedure, if the prior procedures have been acceptably minimalistic, and if that patient is very highly symptomatic, then I don't have a problem going back for the third or fourth procedure. Here's what I have a problem with. The problem is very much along the line of does the patient know if they're symptomatic or not? Because now, yes. after three or four procedures, we're talking about people who might have heart failure, they might have valve problems, they may have uh, hypertension, or they just may have fatigue. And so you have to be ablating atrial fibrillation that really correlates with underlying symptoms. Which which is difficult sometimes, and I use a lot of event monitors. The other thing that I do is when I start to see people coming up for procedure number three is AV nodal ablation and pacing, which is a, a very good modality, and particularly in older patients. You, the PI of the Cabana trial, we've got 45 seconds left, and 
you can use it to for an advertisement. So Cabana asked the question, what's best, ablation or drug therapy? We're hypothesizing that ablation's better, but what we're really looking at is mortality and strokes and heart failure and the bad How many patients? Episodes. Um, we're looking for 3,000 patients. We're up to 700 now. We're doing well in rec recruiting, and we're doing this in 150 centers all over the world. All over the world. So it's not just uh, it's NHLBI sponsored, but it's not um, just North America. No, we have uh, 50 centers in Europe. We have 10 centers in Asia. We're bringing up seven centers in Brazil, and so this is really an international effort to deal with some of the questions that you've asked, like how many times can you ablate? So I, I think this really is a trial whose time has come. It's critically important, and uh, thanks very much for joining us, Doug. It's good to be here. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.